0: Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we're coming before you, and we're asking you to open your word to us in very distinctive ways. We know that we're dealing with timeless truths. We've got to communicate them in timely ways. You know, the needs that are here in and, and all the services, including the this time spent online, We're asking, Lord, that in a very powerful way the Holy Spirit work, each and every heart. The issues, the struggles, the challenges. But most likely, Father, we've got to understand the significance of the relationship we have with you. Coming into this world sinful by nature. And that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. So, Father, with that in mind, and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, central to everything we are about to do. We're asking that again, you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only, and praying these things again now, in Jesus' name, amen. I remember standing along the shoreline of the Atlantic in Virginia, and there was a sign that captured my attention and it said, beware of undertoes. I took a step back and I was watching the life God who was standing and surveying the scene, not merely the shoreline, but looking outwards as well. You see, an undertow occurs everywhere underneath shore approaching waves it has a way, you see, of masking itself. It's beneath the surface. It produces strong currents, but it leads a person in the opposite direction. And when I saw that sign, and I pondered the significance of that sign, I thought about the church, I thought about families, I thought about the culture, I thought about the nation because people who have responsibilities for overseeing various people or details are very prone to deal with what I will call surface level waves. They see what's coming in and fail to take into account that there are what I will call undercurrents and they fail to understand what's taking one out. We are most comfortable with what we can see and what's visible and what's close. For the family, it's a great challenge, you see, because let's say that you have family members and they seem to be so close to Jesus Christ, or maybe they made a profession of Jesus Christ and they were being drawn in, but what we might fail to take into account is that beneath the surface. There might be trends, there might be forces, there might be currents. They're in reality pulling them away. Well, they might be here physically, but they are removed spiritually. Now, I would argue that the evil one delights in working with undercurrents. He will allow for superficial leadership, superficial parenting, superficial governance to deal with the waves that are coming our way, but his specialty is devoting himself to undercurrents. All of a sudden, we say to ourselves, so why did that person lose their footing, his footing, her footing? They seem so close, and all of a sudden, they're drifting. I would argue that while at the surface level, the waves were indeed coming in, the undercurrents were pulling that person away, and they lost their footing and are getting dragged out. Now, I would argue, furthermore, that this is what's happening now in the book of Acts. There's a combination of both visible and invisible attacks upon the church. Visible, typically in the realm of persecution. Persecution but then invisible, in which the evil one is doing subtle measures of trying to get a grip upon what's occurring and keep it from flourishing. We can see this in families. We can see this in lives. We can see this in the nation. We see this in churches. Wise leadership equips people to understand undertones get beneath the waves that are approaching us and to understand the currents that are departing from us. So what I want to do is that anybody that's involved this morning, in particular with leadership, whether it be in the home, church ministries that you might oversee, committees, boards, the likes, teams, what we've got to do is to understand we've got to get beneath the waves approaching us, understand the undercurrents that might be pulling away from us and be better equipped then to minister effectively for God's glory. Now, I've got not one, not two, not three, not four, but five essentials. That's what my syntactical analysis produced out of seven verses here this morning. So what I'd love to do is to draw this out for you and to think very practically about the way in which we can equip ourselves to be highly effective in the realm of leadership, to be able to minister effectively in a culture of undertoes. And the first comes out of verse 1. That when facing what I'll call difficult challenges, not merely leaders, wise leaders should focus upon, number one, the issues that are needing to be addressed. Start now with verse one. It reads, now in these days, And you say, but Gary, what are the days we're talking about? <coughs> the church is unified, the church is multiplied, it's growing. And as it's growing, as it's being multiplied, the evil one, on the other hand, wants to invest himself in division while God's investing himself in multiplication. There's mathematics at stake, you see. Now, behind all this in these days is what's described in the prior verse of chapter five. And every day in the temple and from house to house, in other words, the gathered, such as we are on Sunday morning, And the scattered, house to house, they, meaning the apostles, did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Those are the days. Now the evil one sees multiplication, so he wants to create division. He's doing his math. (coughs) So in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, are we surprised? A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. And you say, Hellenists, Hebrews, let's work this out together. Okay. We're talking about Christian Jews at this point. Christian Jews, which is what the early church was composed of. But what we have to bear in mind is that there are various types of Christian Jews. There were Hellenist Christian Jews, and there were Hebraist Christians. Christian Jews, you say, Gary? what's the difference? The Hellenist Christian Jews tended to live from the outskirts of Jerusalem, maybe in other countries, and come back for the feasts, come back for the festivals, and so on, and probably did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic, most likely spoke Greek. On the other hand, the Hebrews were homegrown. The locals loved their traditions, loved their culture, loved their customs. Spoke Hebrew, spoke Aramaic. But now both groups are being unified by the working of the Holy Spirit. They are one people of God, and God is doing a great work. So what the evil one sees is if God's going to specialize in multiplication, I'm going to specialize in division. And so then what he will do is to pit one group against the other so as to create disharmony rather than harmony among God's people. And he does that to this very day, you see. He will take people from various cultures, various states, various experiences, mingle them together with the locals, who know only their traditions, having traveled very far, and like things to remain the way they are, you see. And he sees this to take advantage of the situation. And that's what's happening here at this point. What are you gonna do? A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Not surprised. It's not the Hebrews against the Hellenists, it's the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Why? Well, they feel something of tangible significance. It's because their widows were being neglected. If you come from the outskirts here and you don't have social security and other such things, you're dependent upon the family unit in that day and age to be able to care for the family. But what happens when the patriarch is no longer present, and perhaps because of switches in geography, the children are not necessarily present as well? Well, now we've got the Hellenist widows on our hands, and we're told that they were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now compare that word daily, in the daily distribution of food, with again what the apostles were involved in in verse 42 of the prior chapter where every day, daily, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, Jesus, is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. (coughs) So now what we see here is that the evil one is trying to take advantage of the situation. Now Luke, as a physician, is very concerned with the needs of the people. And what he's about to do now is to demonstrate how the early church was going to start addressing the issues at hand. He's gonna show us how the apostles were rolling up their sleeves, getting involved and trying to figure out how we're going to meet the felt needs while also dealing with the eternal needs simultaneously. What you and I have to do if we're leading effectively is to understand the undercurrents, the undertow. Typically, the undertow is such that it's gonna start pulling the person away. He or she's gonna lose their footing When you thought the trends were such that that person was being drawn to the shoreline of Jesus Christ. Understand the issues of the hour that need to be addressed at this particular point in this particular time. Now Luke is doing a good job of this. He's drawing out the issues. Now what you and I have to do within your own ministry is likewise, okay, what are the issues? What are the generations? What are the locales that people are coming from? What are the experiences that they bring with them? What are our students facing at this particular point? And remind ourselves some base facts that need to be applied. If you're going to minister effectively, I'd like you to start off with one or two distinguishing features if you oversee ministries. Number one, distinguish between what we'll call the essentials and the additionals of your responsibilities. Ask yourself, what is it that is absolutely essential for me to have hands-on involvement with? Parents have to ask this question. Employers have to ask this question. Ask yourself what is absolutely essential and distinguish it from what you and I might call that which is additional. And then couple that with this other distinctive at the moment. Distinguish between what's meant to be retained what needs to be released. If you try out to hold on to everything, you will accomplish nothing. So know what is necessary to be retained in your responsibilities, and recognize what's necessary to be released in your responsibilities. Released into the hands of others, so that ministry is effective in the home, in the church, in the region, in the nation, and so on. Know the issues that are at hand and realize you and I are called not to be surface-level people. Simply attracted by the waves coming our way, but asking ourselves the tough questions, but what about the undertows, the currents that are pulling various people we're most concerned about away from the shoreline of life? Now, once you and I have distinguished the issues that need to be addressed, You're on then to the second essential that's found in verses 2 and 3, the methods that need to be changed. So now here are the 12, the apostles, and they are summoning the full number of the disciples. Notice that the disciples are not summoning the 12. No, this is proactive leadership, not passive leadership. They see an issue, they want to address the issue. We are not going to simply be impressed with the waves coming our way. We're concerned with the undertow that is pulling some people away from us. There is a fissure about to take place, and we are going to address it. God wants multiplication. The evil one wants division. So the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right. Greek word here at this point carries with the idea of fitting or appropriate. It's not right that we should give up the preaching, the word of God, to serve tables. Now, it's a good thing they didn't stop there, otherwise people would be saying at this point, that's all fine and good, but I've got a growling stomach on my hands here with the widow sitting next to me. And how can truth be embraced when felt needs are not being addressed? That's what the church has got to be able to think through effectively. Now, the apostles were, as we pointed out, going every day to the temple to speak in the gathered state, house to house in the scattered state. This is daily. They're getting taxed. Their output could easily be greater than their input. Something needs to be done. And likewise, for many of us here this morning, it's very possible that your output right now is exceeding your input. If so, it's very possible that you are attempting to retain that which you are meant to release. It could very well be you're not distinguishing between what's essential and what's additional and showing up in your fatigue, in your weariness of life. The apostles are needed to be cutting-edge leaders, And so the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. The full number of the disciples did not summon the twelve. And they're the ones that said, it is not right that we should give up the word of God to serve the tables. Now at this point, what they're going to have to do is this. Adjust their methods without compromising their values. You and I are going to be in situations where people say, but that's the way we do it, or it's always been done that way. Well, no, don't sacralize traditions, and don't confuse traditions with truths. What fascinates me when I study the book of Proverbs is that sometimes the word way is plural, and other times the way is singular. When the way is plural, it means it's talking about methods. Which means you and I, whatever it is that God has called us to do, has got to be able to distinguish between the good, the better, and the best of life. And if we are continuously focusing upon the good and ruling out the best, we're going to exhaust ourselves. That means then you're going to have to delegate some of the good, some of the better, so that you can focus upon what it is that God has called you to do, the best. In other words, you and I are going to have to determine at this point, is what I'm doing ministry, or is this merely activity? Ministry produces a forward movement among God's people. Activity creates a sense of involvement among God's people, but it's not necessarily productivity. What we need at this point is to make these kinds of distinctions. And furthermore, what we need to be able to do is to be able to see the relationship between what we'll call trusting and entrusting. They're gonna have to show that they, the Hebrew leaders, trust the Hellenists so much that they will entrust the Hellenists to do the work that's needed to be done. Now ask yourself, is there somebody to whom I can entrust some of my responsibilities? And as I entrust responsibilities to them, they'll recognize how much I trust some people do not fully recognize trust until they're experiencing the sense in which you are willing to entrust into their lives. Leaders understand this sort of thing. Parents understand this sort of thing. No matter what it is you're doing at this point, you've got to be able to pull these thoughts together. The apostles did. The full number of the disciples said, it's not right that we should give up preaching in the word. Of God, to serve tables, the full number of the disciples are hearing this said, therefore, there's your great therefore once again. You're always asking what's therefore, therefore. Verse 3, therefore, brothers. That was a huge word at this point. Because the apostles were Hebrew Christians. By saying brothers to the Hellenistic Jewish Christians. They're making a statement of unity. Now, when you and I are concerned with leadership, we are continuously looking for ways to communicate a sense of oneness, a sense of unity. You need to do that at home, you need to do it in the church, you need to do it in the nation. Therefore, brothers. Now, notice what they do at this point. The apostles do not say, we'll pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, do they? No. Notice what they do. They trust and therefore they entrust you. Pick out from among you, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit. In other words, at this point, what we're saying is, we trust, we entrust. During the Civil War, there were letters that were communicated back and forth between Jeb Stuart, General, And Robert E. Lee, whenever Jeb Stuart would be writing his letters to Robert E. Lee, he would sign his correspondence, quote, yours to count on, unquote. And that had such a powerful um, impression made upon Robert E. Lee, that it developed a very strong working relationship between Lee and Stuart likewise what we need to do is to communicate that sense of trust and interest in the family in the home among children multiple generations and when we do so what we are saying at this point is that i am willing to adjust my methods in order to achieve the goals that are necessary for god's glory i'm sitting in his office warren weersby and i are talking and we're talking about doctoral programs and the like, and Warren leans forward at this point and says, Garrett, we've got to be able to distinguish between methods and principles. And I say, Dr. Weirs, you tell me more? And he leans forward and he says, methods are many and principles are few, and methods always change, but principles never do. And I say, Warren, I'm not that smart. Slow down and say it again. <laughs> methods are many. Principles are few. Methods always change. Principles never do. Wise leadership in the home, wise leadership in the church, wise liter- leadership in government Can able, is able to distinguish between principles and methods, between what is, and what needs to be done, and be able then to implement strategies that will make a difference. Yours to count on, Stuart would say to Lee. Well now, you're up then in verse 4. And in verse 4, what we find is the third of these essentials. So we've got to draw off ourselves. So when facing difficult challenges, which so many of us are at this point, wise leaders should Thirdly, focus upon the priorities needing to be maintained. Ask yourself now, what's primary for me? And what's secondary to me? And furthermore, ask yourself, and what should be primary for him? And what's secondary for him? Right now at this moment, with four pastors on staff, what's primary for me is secondary for them. Well, what's primary for them as they're throughout this building ministry is secondary to me. But when everybody is doing what needs to be done, consistent to what they're being called to do, well, then we have tremendous impact for God's glory. This is delegation, not application of responsibilities. We have to learn what it is we need to retain and what it is we need to release We distinguish between the essentials and the additionals, and we adjust the methods without compromising the values. To put it another way, we have to understand what's timeless, what's timely, what's time-bound. Eliminate the time-bound and work with the timeless in a timely way. They do it. and So now they go on record in verse 4. And now the apostles are able to say, we will devote ourselves, and here now are the priorities that they're going to lay out, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We've got to understand the significance of prayer in the ministry of that time. Where do they learn this priority from? Jesus Christ. G. Oswald Saunders says, Great crises were preceded by prayer in the life of Christ. It was while he prayed that the Holy Spirit descended upon him. It was his selection of his 12 disciples that was made only after he had spent a night in prayer. Great achievements were preceded by prayer. Great achievements were followed by prayer. Great pressure of work was a call to extra prayer. Great sorrows were met in prayer and he died. And what I want you to understand at this point is that the apostles, they saw it firsthand. They experienced it. They knew it. And if it was a priority to their Lord, it should be a priority to them. It was in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, where the physician writes Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. They were struck how he made prayer a priority. In your family, are they struck with how you make prayer a priority? Do your friends sense it if they don't necessarily even see it? You tie it together with this powerful statement and also to the word. And what I want you to see is not once, not twice, but three times in this section. The word is emphasized. The word of God in verse 2, again in verse 4, and of course in verse 7. Robert Coleman said, be a man of the book. Let Let everyone you work with see how much you love the word of God. Was C.S. Lewis, who had penned, one of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education in and of itself. And that's why someone who lacked formal education, like Bunyan, was able to write a book that has astonished the entire world. You pull that together, then you say, okay, this is what the early church was making a priority in their own experience. And that, in fact, was exactly the case in Acts chapter 2. Where in verse 42, we found the the disciples, we found the followers of Christ being described as devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Now evaluate that, ponder that, and ask yourself now, and how does that mark my own personal experience? Because when I devote myself to investing in God's word and seeking God's word in prayer, I'm no longer so impressed by waves hitting the shoreline of my life. I'm being equipped with incredible discernment to develop a sense of insight that gets beneath the surface of life and be able to ponder the undertow, the currents that might very well cause people that I love to lose their footing. Because they were being pulled out. Well, I assumed all along they were being pulled in. Keep asking yourself, where are the trends of undertones in the settings that God has placed you in? And when you're thinking that through, and you're pondering the issues that you need to address in verse 1, and the methods you need to change in verse 2 and 3, and furthermore, the priorities you need to maintain in verse 4, you're on then to verses 5 and 6 where fourthly i want you to note with me the standards that we need that need to be upheld now after the apostles said this evidently it um, it had impact the people loved what they heard they are being trusted and therefore they know there is the sense of being entrusted and what they said pleased the whole gathering they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it fascinating? He will be the first martyr in the New Testament. The first, shall I say, martyr of the early church. Stephen was a man full of the Spirit. He was a man that loved Jesus as Lord and Savior. Do you know that in the Newer Testament there are two words for crown. There is the diadema, means a royal crown, gives the idea of something which is permanent. And then stephanos, which is the victor's crown. If you have somebody in your family by the name of Stephen or uh, perhaps uh, someone by the name of Stephanie, carries with the idea of the victor's crown. It's tied to the name of Stephen. In that time period, you could inherit the diadema. But the only way to get a Stephanos was to earn it. Now, at this point then, evidently, Stephen had earned respect. And so what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And then there's others listed. And what interests us is that each one of them have a Greek name. And what interests us all the more is that the first martyr in the early church was not a Hebraistic Christian Jew. It was a Hellenistic Christian Jew, martyred by Hebraistic, unbelieving, yet religious Jews. You can predict it if you understand undertones and how the evil one is attempting to pull out while God is pulling in. And you're spotting the tensions and what's needed are standards of loyalty to the principles of God's word. I was thinking about leadership. January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways flight 1549 loses power take off from LaGuardia, and the captain, Jesse Sullenberger, realizing that they would not make it back to the airport, landed the plane in the Hudson River, and saved the lives of 155 passengers and the crew. And I've mocked these words from the press release. He remained calm at all times, despite describing it as the worst sickening pit of your stomach falling through the floor feeling he had ever experienced. He demonstrated leadership by being the last to leave the plane after ensuring no one was left aboard. Love it. That's discernment. He kept the standards. and What we love are leaders who are able to keep the standards. And as a result, what they demonstrate is a combination of faithfulness and effectiveness. I get younger pastors calling on the phone, can we talk for a while? And they're talking about the issues they're being confronted with somewhere in the nation. Tremendous guys, they love Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're marked by faithfulness. What they need is to invest time in Acts 6, understand the value of effectiveness. That's a one-two punch. What they need to be able to do is to invest not only in the waves that are approaching the shore, which are visible, but the undertow, discerning the currents that are pulling away from the shore. Because they might be wondering, but why are people losing their footing? Here's the standards that need to be upheld. And the apostles are making certain now the standards are being met. These they set before the apostles. And they, the apostles, prayed, laid hands on them. And now we are seeing Hebraistic Christian Jews laying hands on Hellenistic Christian Jews. What kind of symbolic statement is being made at that point by leaders? Leadership needs to be able to comprehend the value of symbolism, visual symbolism, knowing how to make a statement visibly as well as verbally. And when you do that, you're a cutting edge and demonstrating to the rest of the world what true leadership's all about. One more. Check out verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. Did you see in verse 2 it said the word of God? Spot in verse 4 it said ministry of the word. Now in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. And what's the result of that? The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And where there is what I will call a unified gathering of God's people, there is a multiplied impact upon God's people. And so it's because of the word of God this is occurring, but don't miss how this ends. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests, they're made up the Sadducees. Sadducees, they made up the Sanhedrin. Who wanted Jesus Christ crucified? The Sanhedrin. Who were the ones that had Peter and John incarcerated? The Sanhedrin. Now what we are seeing is transforming grace because what you and I see here is wise leadership being unlocked for the rest of the world to be able to experience as this moves from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and other parts. And this is what can happen when a church is at cutting edge and the leaders understand what is priority. And when you operate this way, you and I are able to operate on the basis of understanding both the visible and the invisible, to understanding the waves that are on top of the surface that are coming our way, but also the currents, the undertow that is going away from us, And when both are understood simultaneously, we are better equipped then to minister effectively for God's glory in a culture which people don't know Jesus is Lord and Savior. And this is full-spectrum discipleship. A unified body of believers. A multiplied body of believers. And God is getting all the glory. Five essentials to lead. Father, we love the way in which these men, sleeves rolled up, understood the value of doing what Sanders said, getting things done through others. And that this is the highest type of leadership. They were able to restate their priorities and restructure their ministry They were able to adjust their methods without compromising their values. They understood what's the essential and what's the additional. They learned what to retain and what to release and so should each of us. So if there's anybody this morning whose output has exceeded their input and they come and they're weary, maybe that's the symptom that's crying out the need to be addressed. Speak to that heart. May adjustments be made so that the word of God goes forth and we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.